book of Proverbs, chapter 6, Sunday morning, studying the book of Proverbs together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisle right now, and they'll give you a Bible marked to our passage we're studying today. And if you don't uh, own a Bible, make that Bible yours today. And uh, Sunday nights we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we're in the uh, book of Acts this evening where we'll continue our study. Six o'clock, each of you are invited. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Let's pray together. Father, the wonderful thing about studying your word together and teaching it is not, nothing like it in the world in the sense that it's not a lecture, um, not an address at a club of some kind or some academic center, but we turn to your word in fellowship with you and with a relationship with you, eager to have you speak your truth in, into our life and into that relationship. And so we pray just as we've worshipped you in song that now that sense of worship and communion with you would continue, that conversation would continue now in our, our study of your word. And we pray for this work of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Once again, we remember that the theme of the overarching theme of the book of Proverbs is wisdom. And in this passage, uh, the Holy Spirit, uh, in using uh, Solomon, reveals to us uh, seven things that the Lord hates, seven things which are an abomination to him. The word hate is an interesting word in the original language. It means uh, to abhor, uh, detest, loathe, be hostile toward, have a feeling of open hostility and intense uh, dislike. So, okay, that gets my attention. Uh, if uh, God uh, hates something and that, that is what he feels toward it. Uh, the word abomination carries the idea of abhorrent, repulsive, and offense. And so again, uh, this is a, another wow to stop and to think about uh, the, this list and God's attitude toward the things that are on that list. And so I want to just take a moment and think about that, to absorb that, uh, this, the this very strength of the words uh, that are used here uh, are, are, they're accurate, uh, so that's first and foremost, but they're certainly intended to jar us uh, in, in some level and to really capture our undivided attention. And for what purpose? In order to take these sins, and not only these seven sins, but all sin in life uh, seriously in our own lives. And so um, to uh, examine uh, our own lives for the, this list that we'll go through in just a moment, uh, to, for whatever degree or level they may exist within our lives, and then if they do exist, to repent of that, confess it as sin to God, and to ask for His forgiveness and move forward. And so at the very least, He wants us to know 
his displeasure with this. He hates these things and to steer clear of them in our own lives. And so it also has that preventative element uh, in our lives as Christians and it's tended to. So the passage is very strong medicine and, uh, and it needs to be strong medicine. I think that most often we like to kind of uh, search our hearts or to examine our hearts uh, by means of Paul's instruction to the church in Philippi where he said whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are noble, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, etc. Meditate upon these things. And, uh, but there's something to be said for declaring the opposite of those things as we have here because for some of us, it causes these things to hit us in a little different way and in a way in which we uh, need. Another thing about this list and, and is helpful about a list like this is that even as Christians, we have a temptation to and a tendency to do uh, what the ancients uh, did. Uh, the Greek and the Roman gods were essentially the de- deification of the good and bad in mankind. And so uh, thus they were the deification of fallen man in a sense. And so you could choose to worship the god or goddess that best uh, reflected you or uh, best uh, reflected your beliefs. And so the god or goddesses who were good or who were brave, or on the other hand, uh, if you were sexually immoral or violent or uh, warlike or volatile in temperament, uh, pleasure-seeking, hung, uh, power-hungry, uh, you could find a god that would, in essence, uh, in, at least in the mind games we can play, uh, sanctify uh, or, or legitimize uh, that negative thing in our life by saying, well, it's just like one of the gods and the gods that I, uh, the God that I in particular uh, uh, worship. And so it was an attempt on the part of the ancients to create God in our image. And in the same way, I think that even as Christians over time, Uh, we will face the temptation, uh, same temptation, and that is to fashion God, even the God of the Bible, after ourselves and after our own image. So instead of accepting the full revelation of God and and His character uh, as it's revealed in the Scriptures, uh, we determine that we will uh, accept some of those things or not accept some of those things. And we tend to not accept things uh, that have to do with his holiness or have to do with his uh, unique authority to judge and to judge mankind. And, and instead of accepting all of his commandments as authoritative in our lives, we start to decide which commandments we agree with or we disagree with, which commandments we will take seriously or which commandments we will choose to uh, ignore. And in the end, if I uh, end up producing uh, that kind of a, of a Christianity, uh, if I'll closely examine this, this definition of God and Christianity that I've produced, I will notice that 
It bears very little resemblance to the God of the Bible, uh, very little resemblance to uh, the Christianity of the Bible, and instead I will discover that my Christianity that I uh, have formed bears a remarkable uh, resemblance to myself. Imagine that. And uh, that we have consciously or unconsciously turned Christianity into the one thing it is not, and that is the worship of myself, of uh, idolatry. And, uh, and it, it's lists like this that uh, because of their strength, because they pull us up uh, strong and because of their clarity, they kind of shake us out of this, that this isn't a game, this isn't a club, uh, there is a God, he's real, and, uh, and to, to wake up to the folly of thinking that I can redefine him or redefine Christianity as it's revealed in the scriptures and somehow improve upon it, or even uh, that it can somehow be helpful to me uh, in my own life. In, a, in an entirely different vein, when I was a sophomore in high school, there was a R&B group called The Persuaders, and they had a hit song, and the chorus of that hit song was, it's a thin line between love and hate. And so sorry for those of you who are familiar with it, and I've introduced that, and at the world's worst time, it's going to come into your mind uh, all through the day. But it was an interesting song, and it, it communicated that if you keep mistreating someone who loves you, really loves you, and, and if, you, if you keep uh, taking advantage of them over and over and over again, taking advantage of the relationship, making the relationship completely uh, one-sided, then one day their love for you can uh, very quickly turn into hate. And of course the song, uh, Hate For You, and so the song, uh, it resonated with people because so many people have had in life have had their love treated in, in that way. They've been taken advantage by someone that they loved, that they truly loved, betrayed over and over and again, deeply hurt by that person that they love over and over again. And then there comes a point in time where a line gets crossed and then as strongly as they once felt love for that person, now they feel hate. Now the song assumes uh, that there is a line, however thin, that always exists between love and hate, that somehow love and hate are mutually uh, exclusive, that you can have one or the other towards someone or something, but you, you can't have both. And that may be generally true in life, but it isn't always true uh, in, in life. And so people can get it confused when they come to a passage like this in the Bible that reveals the God of the Bible to be a God of love, but also a God who hates even when what he hates is sin. And so people wonder, how can he be a God of love and then hate something? Well, he can when that hatred of sin occurs as an expression of his love. And when, as all sin does, when sin rises up 
in violation of the two great commandments in the scriptures, the first being to love God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength, and to love our neighbor uh, as, as ourself. And when sin rises up and endeavors to do a violence to God's uh, love or violence to God's holiness, to his heart and his character, and to do so in rebellion to his authority as uh, God Almighty, then, uh, then God will, uh, that, that violation, God hates that. And, and when sin, then in terms of our fellow man, when sin, as it always does, represents a threat to another person, uh, when it's an act of violence committed uh, against another person, uh, not only against them physically, but against their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. And all sin is a, an assault upon God, and it's a, an assault upon our fellow man. And the fact of the matter is, is that God could not be a God of love, and certainly not in any meaningful way, if he did not hate sin, for the rebellious thing that it is toward him and toward his righteous kingdom, and then for the terrible price that he recognizes uh, that sin uh, people pay for every expression of sin in the world. Sin always expresses itself at the expense of God and at the expense of our fellow man. And so he hates it, for the destructive, unholy thing that it is. Now with that in mind, and with a desire for our hearts and our lives to bring pleasure to God, we certainly don't want to have uh, our hearts be marked by things that God uh, hates. We want to look at this list of the seven things that the Holy Spirit reminds us that God hates and, and in order that we might have nothing to do uh, with them in our lives presently to repent of it or to avoid it moving forward in our Christian life. So the seven sins that the Lord hates, uh, number one in verse 17, the Lord hates a proud look. Some translations have it, uh, haughty eyes, and I think that's very, very helpful. And this speaks of a heart or a mind, uh, a person who is so full of pride, so haughty, that they wear it. Uh, it. It can't be hidden in their lives. And, or of a person who is proud and is haughty and has no interest in hiding uh, their arrogance in pride. It shows up on their face and uh, the, uh, he or she exudes pride. Pride means to see myself above. To see myself above uh, others as intrinsically better than others for the sole reason that I am me and they are them. And, and there, uh, uh, there is that pride. Uh, somebody wrote concerning this uh, uh, pride, it overvalues self and it undervalues others. It overvalues self and it undervalues others. That's a very good way uh, to put it. And so we can stop this morning in our lives. 
whether in our marriages or on the part of youth toward parental authority uh, or in the workplace or at school or our neighborhood or or our interactions anywhere, even in, in church, And to stop and to ask ourselves, get in the privacy of our own hearts, am I living right now where I overvalue myself and I undervalue others? And the way that we we come to find out whether that marks our lives or not is in how we view people and then most importantly, how we uh, treat people other people. God hates this when he sees it in a human heart and and on a face. When a person exudes pride, just strutting around, makes no attempt to hide it uh, or to treat it as sin and doesn't care what damage is done as they treat people with disdain, they dismiss them, they treat people with contempt, they treat people uh, rudely. Concerning pride, C.S. Lewis has one of my favorite quotes related to pride. Uh, If you can have a favorite quote concerning pride, but um, I think it, it possesses great clarity here. He wrote, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. I love that line. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the completely anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. The Lord also hates a lying tongue, verse 17. Uh, James in his uh, epistle in the New Testament Uh, uh, talking about the destructive potential of the tongue, uh, he likened that uh, to a fire. And so the interesting thing about words and likening it to to a fire is that once words leave our mouths, they're like a wildfire. They're like setting something on fire. Because once words leave our mouths, we, at that point, lose total control of them. We no longer have any more control over where they're going to go, what they're going to do, the damage that they're, they're going to do. And so that's why the Bible says that we need to weigh our words before we say them uh, and, and, uh, and then release our words into the heart and the mind and the soul and the strength of of our fellow human beings and Christians. Of course, all of us have been watching the news this last week to just see how destructive a fire can be on the island of Maui. And uh, particularly the city of Lahaina is virtually disappeared in a matter of hours uh, because of the destructiveness of, of fire. And all of the shops, all the galleries, Uh, the restaurants. I mean, many of us have gone into those places and had a hamburger or watched the art and all of it just gone in a matter of hours. And we're mortified by it as we see it. Such a waste, such such destruction. And, uh, but what a destroyer lies are. 
to the reputation of other people, and they can destroy a man or woman's reputation just as quickly and just as completely, and God uh, hates it, uh, as well as destroy the reputation of a business or destroy the reputation uh, of a church. And I wonder what lies you and I believe about someone else this morning based solely upon what someone else has told you about them. But you and I have no evidence for it ourselves. We've never seen it in their lives, or worse, we have not gone to verify the facts of the accusation uh, from the accused, and yet now, because of what somebody said to me, I now hold that person in the spirit of suspicion, and I hold them in contempt. And it's possible to do that for hours and weeks and months and for years based upon a lie or a slander that's been spoken uh, about them. And we live in a culture that is given to slander. It, 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 it almost worships slander uh, and, and, and lies. And to think about how many not just the uh, individual, maybe one or two, but to think about how many people in my life, whether at work or at school or in the neighborhood uh, or politicians or entertainers and, and, and such, and I view them strictly on the basis of what one person or some people have told me. Now, there are certain things that are true about people, and, and, and those things are verified out of the mouth of two or three witnesses or the fruit of it. I'm talking about what we sit, we don't know anything other than what the person has said. And what is the percentage of the relationships in my life and how I view people that is completely dominated by that, by what somebody said, and I don't know that it isn't uh, a lie. And so to just stop and consider in our culture that we live in how much poison has been introduced into our lives by the way of lies. Lies that we operate in and we operate under and don't even realize they're to be viewed with suspicion. Things we believe to be true, but they are not. And introduced into our lives by a lying tongue. But they stay there in large part based upon our willingness uh, to listen to lying tongues. And I'm convinced concerning myself and just about everybody else I know, we tend to believe what we want to believe. We tend to believe what we want to believe. Independence of the facts. Independent of the facts. Or of, of uh, any 
uh, proof. Would we have believed the lies being spoken about Jesus 2,000 years ago simply because someone said them to us? And maybe if you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, do you believe uh, the lies that are spoken about him today, yet today, never having picked up a gospel to investigate his life, never having run through them, but some cultural anthropology uh, professor or some other person or an aunt or an uncle says something and some offhand remark and haven't represented him properly at all, and then I can carry that for decades as my impression of him and my impression of Christianity, and it has no foundation in the truth. It's been spread by a lying uh, tongue. God deals only in truth. And so to speak a lie is to explode something into existence, into God's creation that is completely contrary to his nature, contrary to him. It is an act of violence against his creation and he hates it in verse 17 the lord hates hands that shed innocent blood and i trust none of us are contemplating that uh, in in our lives but it's good for us to be reminded of the fact that god hates the shedding of innocent blood and we live in a nation presently in which murder and the shedding of blood are commonplace I can read about how many people have been killed in Chicago or New York over the weekend and eat a bowl of cereal. Because who can, who can emotionally engage in uh, the kind of uh, society on any kind of an emotional level that we live in? And, and so the shedding of blood and, and the shedding of innocent life has become so commonplace. And to, to such a degree, as I say, it's easy to become callous to the horrific thing that it is in the eyes of God. And this I'm always reminded of a provision under the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 21, where God instructed Moses concerning his people. He said, if you find somebody murdered, somebody Innocent blood has been slain. You find them, say, in a field. Then the elders of the city uh, or the village that is the closest to the body are to come out to where the body is and offer a sacrifice on behalf of that victim to God and, and... and then as Deuteronomy puts it, then they shall answer the priests on behalf of the people. So you have the whole village come out and they see this horrible thing. And, and then to cry out, our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. And atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood. And God said, so you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. 
Now that's Old Testament. That's Old Covenant. But imagine if at the scene of every murder in the United States of America, something similar to this that would be a confession of saying, this is a horrible thing that has happened. We play no part in it. We don't know uh, who did it, but we want to acknowledge you to you, God. We do not want to become callous to this. We do not want to begin to view life uh, so carelessly and, and with such little uh, value. I wonder if it wouldn't uh, do a lot to maintain an attitude and an understanding of the value of human life uh, among us. I think it certainly was God's intent for his people, not only under the old covenant, but also today, that we're not to get used to this. We are always to be mortified by murder at one person extinguishing the life of another human being, an innocent human being, and in order to continue to recognize the sacredness of life and in the womb as well. In verse 18, the Lord hates a heart that devises wicked plans. And this is the person who's always thinking of some way to do wrong, always planning. And there are people who are always planning how to do right and how to do good. Unfortunately, there are other people that their whole mind goes uh, 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 into uh, thoughts of how to deliberately do violence or an act of vengeance or an act of cruelty uh, or uh, an act of rebellion against uh, God. And there, that heart that devises the wicked uh, plans, always plotting some uh, evil and it certainly includes uh, making plans on an individual level in my heart uh, toward uh, to do harm to another uh, person in some way to take advantage of them in some way to rob them in some uh, some way and it certainly includes gangs and organized crime and drug cartels at the foundation of all of it are hearts that devise wicked plans it also speaks of this kind of thing on a corporate or a national uh, level where people in these boardrooms and people uh, in these levels of, of government, corporations and, and government scheme about how to advance wickedness in society, to advance practices and agendas that God considers to be uh, wicked. And there's so, so many illustrations we could talk about it, but you, you think about uh, drag queen story time. That didn't, that didn't just poof into existence out of nowhere. It, it came out of hearts that devise wicked plans. The idea that somehow uh, this perversion, somehow uh, small children need to be educated into this and this needs to be made uh, uh, a normative and all this kind of thing is on steroids in our corporate world and in our nation and education and entertainment and increasingly on a federal state and uh, local level in terms of government and God sees it and he hates it and his judgment for it uh, is building 
And you see it in our country as the longer you walk with the Lord and, and you don't rejoice in it. But I certainly wake up in this nation uh, never, having never felt more in my lifetime that if and when God decides to judge, no one will be able to complain when he rises up and he does it. He sees it and he hates it. And that's a comfort really to the righteous to know that God hates this and he's going to deal with it in his own time and in his own way. It's so easy to feel, uh, feel powerless as a righteous person, righteous in the blood of Christ, but as a, a person that cares about rightness and, and uh, cares about the things of the Lord, that we feel powerless in the face of the kind of budgets and power that are advancing these other things, and it comforts us to know uh, that God views it uh, even with greater concern than we do. In verse 18, the Lord hates feet that are swift and running to evil. This is talking about an, an enthusiasm for practicing uh, evil, an, an eagerness opposed to an eagerness uh, to do good. We see this on display all of the time in our culture. Um, uh, all gang activity is, has this as a part of its foundation. Uh, an increase in crime uh, always has this as a foundational component. You have social media now that produces these huge crowds of people uh, that are gathering for the sole re purpose of looting or vandalizing or, or misbehaving and, and people just looking for a chance to do wrong, to do evil and to race to that place where it can be practiced and it can be uh, done. I think we need to be careful uh, as Christians if in our hearts we get more excited about wrongdoing as opposed to doing right. If you watch a television show and how uh, sympathetically these things increasingly uh, or books or literature uh, and music can present uh, the, the bad guy or the wicked guy sympathetically make him or her the hero of the story. And a person is more emotionally attached and rooting for the bad guy than for the good guys. And it's a clear uh, sign that something has been turned upside down in our hearts the Lord hates a false witness who speaks lies, verse 19. Here you have perjury, the person who speaks law, uh, lies in a court of law or in some uh, other kind of hearing, uh, a, a official hearing where someone is trusting on us to tell them uh, the, the truth related to something. And so uh, this is someone who subverts uh, justice in this way, and God hates it because perjury destroys any possibility of justice uh, within, uh, within a nation. A and thus it destroys the very foundation of, of any functioning society. It was John Dryden, he was an influential British thinker of the 1600s. Uh, he put it this way, truth is the foundation of all knowledge and it is the cement of all societies. And so our commitment is always to be to, to tell truth and to be an honest uh, witness. And then the Lord hates 
uh, one who sows discord among brethren, verse 19. And here's the person that's always stirring it up in terms of relationships between uh, others, always creating a division, always planting some kind of a thought, always undermining in some way where if they're sophisticated, uh, it isn't even readily apparent that that's what they're doing, undermining some, uh, some relationship in a person's uh, life. And so they're always stirring up trouble and division, whether it's within a family or whether it's among friends or in a workplace or at school. Uh, or even in a church. And so this kind of person is contentious by nature. They love to fight because fight is what is in them, but they destroy the relationships in life that we need. Or the, it, it, at the very least, they strain those relationships in our life. They cast doubt on those, those relationships. And it's those relationships that make life a blessing, and it's those relationships in our life that so often uh, hold our lives together when difficult times come into our life, and that person that's always working to undermine those, whether they're a jealousy in their heart or uh, whether they're just plain vindictive or whatever it might be. And there's such a danger to a, a church that Paul wrote to Titus And he said, reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Additionally related to this list, this list should make any Christian uh, recoil at the thought of practicing these things, given the place that every one of them played in the life of Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion. A proud look and a proud heart revealed in the hearts of the Jewish religious leaders towards Jesus simply because he opposed their very wrong-headed and wrong-hearted interpretation of the Sabbath. John chapter 5, the man speaking of the man healed at the pool of Bethesda, he departed and he told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done uh, these things on the Sabbath. You think about what sense of self-importance must a a person have? What uh, sense of infallibility must a person have concerning themselves to consider it acceptable to murder another person to silence their view or their truth because it uh, contradicts my own. A lying tongue. We remember er in the early morning trial before uh, Jesus, before Caiaphas, the high priest. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. It had to be false testimony. There could be no true testimony that made him worthy of death. But they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. 
But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. Hence, it shed innocent blood. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all of the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children, the heart that devises wicked plans. When morning came, Matthew 27, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Feet that are swift in running to evil, again Matthew 27. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontus Pilate, the governor. And then a false witness who speaks lies. Again, the religious leaders uh, at Jesus' religious trial that morning. And then finally, one who sows discord among the brethren, Mark chapter 15. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should, that is Pilate, rather release uh, Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, Crucify him. And then Pilate said to them, Why, what has he done? And they cried out all the more, Crucify him. And this morning is a part of our service. We want to partake of uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, is a part of our uh, meditation and continued meditation upon Uh, this passage. If you're with us here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, you can become a Christian in an instant. It's a gift from God. And all that has to happen is a person, and the reason it can happen so readily and happen so quickly is because God has done all of the heavy lifting, indeed all of the lifting related to our salvation. And so when a person looks at God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me as a sinner, I've been less than perfect all of my life, and I believe that you are so holy that but one sin, much less a lifetime of sin, would separate me from a relationship with you. And so I confess my sin to you and ask for your forgiveness, and I believe that you sent your Son, Jesus, into the world to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of my sin. And I turn now from my sin and my selfishness. I put my faith in your son for forgiveness. I give you my life now to live your ways the rest of my life. And when a person does that, the Holy Spirit comes into their life and they're born again. And they begin a relationship with God. And if you'd like to do that from your seat, then you can partake of the Lord's Supper with us now. If you are not yet a Christian, you say, I'm not ready to do that right now then continue to enjoy the service, but don't partake of the Lord's Supper. You'll want to wait until you are in relationship with Jesus Christ to then partake of the the symbols of his body and blood given for your, your forgiveness. The partaking of the Lord's Supper is three things all at once. It is a retrospect, a looking back upon what Jesus has done for us. It is an a prospect, a looking ahead to his uh, return, but it is also an introspect. It is a time to be a time as well of examination. We don't give a lot of time to examination. 
but it should happen all, always when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And an opportunity to just to sit, as Paul said, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged uh, of God. Uh, Paul said, examine yourselves. And so it's a legitimate thing to just stop as a part of before we partake of these elements, to just stop these symbols of Jesus, to just stop and look at our lives in the light of these seven things. And then to whatever degree they may or may not exist in my life, then to realize I do not want to have anything in my life that God hates. Why would I want Him to look at me and hate something about me? And then to just turn away from it, repent of it, and then become current again in my relationship with Jesus, and then to move forward now in the Christianity, not the one that I have defined after myself, and is essentially the worship of self, but the Christianity that's found in the Bible, and the one that honors God, and is our privilege to live, and then to turn back to that kind of a life and Christianity. And so this time, as we partake of the bread, the men are going to pass it in, in just a moment. Just take the bread, hold it, we'll pray together, and then we'll partake together. And just, just allow anything that we're aware of in our own life to say, this in my life is unworthy of that sacrifice, of that death burial and resurrection and I've known it for a long time but I haven't taken the time to examine myself and deal with it in the way that God calls me to deal with it and to do that this morning or the Holy Spirit just can put his finger on something in our lives that we've grown accustomed to or that we may not be aware of at all and say, I want that to go. And it's a good thing. It's a wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so let's take this time as we consider the bread, a symbol of his broken body, and, and allow this passage to search us in that way, but also to cleanse us in the way that it's intended to do. So if the men will come forward and the worship team will come forward and we'll partake of the